Hey, there we are. I'm looking like I just got, uh, I don't know. Someone just put a blow dryer in my face or something. Hi, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the 22nd of November, 2022. And this is episode, I believe, 139 of my live chat. I believe that's right. Yeah, yeah, 139. I hope everyone is doing well. Welcome to this Tuesday edition. Not a permanent thing, but Thursday is Thanksgiving. I don't want to do the live chat that day. Most of you wouldn't watch that day anyway. So here we are moving it to Tuesday. I've been moving it around. I did one on Sunday last week. I did one on Tuesday. Just trying to find time to fit in where I can. So thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Please hit subscribe if you are new. And uh, what else? Uh, If you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, do be so nice as to leave a nice review. Okay? All right. Um, Today on the docket, you guys pick the show. We do what you guys want to get to. I see some questions about uh, Habib. I see some questions about some general UFC stuff. I think some Elon Musk stuff was thrown in there as well. You tell me. We'll get to what you guys want. As always, we'll go for about an hour on the free questions. You are certainly under no obligation to leave a donation, but if you do, we'll put your question on the screen and we'll answer it at the end. So up to you. No pressure. If you don't want to just consume for free, I'm happy you're here just the same. Okay? Um, With that out of the way, with that preamble done, I think we're good to go. Let's get this party started, shall we? All right. We are back. Um, Yeah, that's it. Uh, I think this is working, right? Let's double check this shit. It should be. Let me make sure. I actually don't even know. Let's see if Othello has texted me. No, he hasn't, so we're probably good. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, people are talking about um, the World Cup game going on. I guess it's Australia and France. As you guys know, I'm trying to kind of skip this one a little bit because uh, it's fucking gross, and I don't really want to... The thing is, I have so much soccer news on my twitter feed and my instagram feed and everything else that it's basically impossible for me to avoid and you know the u.s is you know they're better than they have been in in recent years i suppose but uh they're not going to win shit so (laughs) colombia is not in it you know i don't really have a rooting interest at this point so it is what it is okay uh with that in mind let's get this party started let me blow this up just a little bit more to make it more readable there we go and then let's get the questions in right now Let's do it. Okay. We'll do it this way. Yeah, like that. All right, Luke. Uh, How much time do you think it will take for the Dagestani style to get figured out? Now that they have athletes who are belt holders in multiple organizations, do you think the amount of time spent by other camps to study, excuse me, to study it turns up? You're the best, man. All right. So I am glad you worded that question the way that you did. You worded it as, when is it going to get figured out? I don't think it's going to get figured out in the way that you might be describing it. I, I, hard to know exactly because I'm not in your head. But let me just explain what's probably going to happen here. And this is my best assessment. The Dagestani style is not going to be figured out in the sense that someone's going to come up with some kind of antidote to it to repel it. I mean, you might see on occasion some version of that. But that, at scale, that's really not what I think is going to happen. Like the NFL... Combat sports is a copycat system, right? What do I mean by that? In the NFL, one season, you'll see a team or two or something like that 
have some kind of play, some kind of setup where they're able to get points or move the ball down the field in a way that is unusual relative to previous seasons. They've got some novel strategy, some novel kind of arrangement of the players, some kind of novel formation, play calling, scheming, something, right? And that will work for a long time. It will work for usually the the either the entirety or a big chunk of the season. And then what you see is the next season, all the teams know how to do it or to bare minimum defend against it, and then something else comes up. The Dagestani style is not going to be figured out in the sense that it's going to be repelled. Eventually, over time, and some of this will be hard to replicate because the crucible in which these guys compete is going to make this difficult, right? The crucible under which these guys, like the, you know, working under Coach Habib and the discipline and the drive and the motivation and the requirements, that is going to be hard to replicate. But the better teams across the world will eventually not find a way to repel it, but be able to carry it out, right? In other words, the very best teams, or at least I should say the very best fighters on the very best teams are going to be able to do some version of it such that they also have those powers or, you know, enough of them so that that distinct advantages that they hold no longer are in play. MMA is going to be a copycat version of it. What you're going to see is that over time, that adoption of, and to some extent, you've already seen a lot of it in the way that people do a lot of control methods on the ground, a lot of the different uh, setups for takedowns. Again, they're going to have to catch their level of wrestling up to some of the specifics that those that the Nurmagomedovs do, for example. I've been talking about this a lot. They're big fans of the single leg and not just the single leg, of running the single leg into off-balancing situations where they can then hit trips, they can move to the body lock, whatever they need. But they'll take a single leg and they don't press someone against the fence. They take the single leg and then they get that guy in motion. They get him to balance on it where it's just really unsteady and then they go for their takedowns. People are going to get pick up on that. You're going to get good at that over time so that this stuff will be a less of an advantage, right? And of course, the Dagestanis will then over time update their methods. So there'll, there'll be some cat and mouse to this in some kind of way. But what I really think you've seen, the lesson in MMA is not that things go away, although some stuff gets rejected, but the good stuff just gets widely disseminated, right? And the best teams, they can't get all of it. But you know, if you just look at 15 years ago, the dominance that American wrestlers had over the sport, the British had no real answer for it. But it turns out over time, they don't have to find a way to stop that. Like they'll just wait out to a ref stands them up and then they go back to striking. What they found is they just got better at wrestling, right? They got better at defensive wrestling, offensive wrestling. They got better at scrambling. They just got better at all of it. They brought in American wrestlers to be coaches. They brought in Iranian guys. They brought in whoever. So what's going to happen is the real contribution that the Dagestanis are going to offer to MMA is not just excellence in sport, although that is part of it. The real uh, give back that they're going to have is that they're going to lift the sport. They're going to overall make the sport better by virtue of their participation and their methods and strategy and execution in it. They have shown you a version and there's all different kinds of versions, but they've shown you a version of excellence. People are just going to copy that as best they can. And over time, they will. Uh, okay. Look, uh, this isn't really a question, more of a comment. Recently, people have talked about how Frankie Edgar's achievements and greatest moments, but seem to forget the beating he put on a now title contending Yair Rodriguez, which in my opinion is the last great Frankie performance. 
I have to think about that. That might be true. I know Frankie is now a topic a few weeks past the news cycle, but I just wanted to remind folks of that fight and that they should have give, give it a watch or a rewatch. Very impressive. Love the show. Yeah. And didn't take hardly any damage in that fight when Frankie fought Yair. Took him down and then just pounded on him from Yair's guard. Now, Yair's takedown defense has gotten better. His scrambling has gotten better. He's got great up kicks. He leveled up since that performance, and I think if they fought today, it wouldn't look anything like that. But yeah, that was a great one. Let me pull up Frankie's record. I'm not sure. I don't even remember exactly when that happened. Um, in what year? What was that, 2017, 2016, something like that? When was that? When did he fight Yair? 2017, yeah. Yeah, he back-to-back -back wins over Stevens and Rodriguez, and that was after losing to Aldo the second time at UFC 200. But you're right. That is the last. I mean, he had the win over Cub Swanson, which was pretty good. But um, you're right. Like the last, you know, that was the last stoppage he scored. Yes. And um, boy, he put it on him. He put it on him real good in that fight. Yeah, no doubt about it. Let me let me show you here. You can see here. So this is what he's talking about here. This was a TKO win. Let me blow this up a little bit if I can there we go that's a little bit hard to read but you get the idea here after that he lost to ortega which was a something of a not surprise but the way the quickness with which ortega won was a surprise rebounded against cub had the fight against max the 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 the, the scores on that make it look like it was a wide blowout but it really wasn't then he lost a chance on jung that was bad he got really fucked up in that fight had dropped to 135 against pedro muñoz eked one out but that was a good that was a good performance but ever since then, he's just been getting, I mean, look at this, KO, KO, KO. Like, it was time to go. It was really time to go, for sure. All right. Let's go back here. Good question. Luke, from an analyst perspective, would it be beneficial for someone without a martial arts background to pick up a specific base, e.g. wrestling, before transitioning into MMA, is there a benefit of having a base even though you could start MMA, MMA straight up nowadays? I'm not sure what you mean from an analyst perspective because it sounds like what you're really asking is from a participant's perspective, what would be the best? I mean, really, it's like I don't, these questions are very difficult to answer in one important respect, namely, like what do you want to do with your MMA training or what do you want to do with your martial arts training? Are you just trying to stay in shape and be a part of a community and mold yourself into something in which case you're going to get one set of answers um what's available to you in your local neighborhood or city um what are you you know what do you want to do like what or what are you willing to commit to um that's these are all important questions uh are you actually trying to compete if, if so there's some questions you have to ask yourself are you trying to go pro or you want to make this an occupation like all of these answers are going to yield somewhat different results and so it's hard to answer as like a general rule i i would just say and also like you know when you watch ufc all the time you get a real weird sense of mma like that is that is not what most mma looks like most mma doesn't look that polished or that cleaned up most of it looks like a very different wilder version of itself um as wild as the ufc can be what i would say is if you want to train personally speaking try shit out it's really what I did. I tried out a little bit of boxing. I tried out a little bit of kickboxing. Didn't like kickboxing very much personally from a participatory standpoint. Liked wrestling a lot. Liked jujitsu a lot. Liked boxing a little bit. Um, and those were the three main ones that I spent the majority of my time. And, you know, and there's all different ways to do it. And 
commitment, but I, I would just try stuff. But also you have to ask yourself, like, if you're trying to actually do this to compete and to win and to make it a profession, the general rule would be you have to have competencies everywhere, but you need to have one that you can really lord over everyone else. You need to get that. Um, and you need to make sure that you can implement that consistently in fights, right? If you're, a, if you're Izzy, you have phenomenal striking. You need to make sure that you've got a way to implement that and that your takedown defense and whatever else is on point. If you're Habib and you really want to wrestle, you got to make sure that your takedowns are just better than everyone else's takedown defense. You've got to make sure that that's in play. So champions tend to have their bases covered and then one or two things or uh, one or two aspects of a style that they really can kick everyone's ass with. That would be the answer. But in, if you're just an average person and you want to train martial arts, first of all, I don't necessarily recommend training MMA. I don't think you need to do that. Um, and, and besides, like the injury consequences, depending on what kind of gyms you go to, could be severe. Not necessarily there are better gyms now than there used to be. But I would just say just try stuff. Try And, and, and when I say try, what does that mean? Well, unless you really have a clear sense that you don't like something, six months at least, a year usually is what I would say, consistently showing up, getting getting some kind of lay of the land for what it all looks like. Um, you might be able to come to it, like you might figure out like boxing, fuck this, I don't want to do it. I want to do something else, grappling based, you can do that. But the, the answer to these questions is there's no one size fits all. It's highly dependent on who you are and what you want to do. Uh, let's see. um so good question here I, I don't know how exactly how to fully answer it but i'll give you my best shot at it i've been trying to understand the financials for youtube i was looking at the mk social blade and was wondering how uh, how it has been profitable the last few years it hasn't been profitable the last few years is showtime making the profit through sponsors or are they just willing to take a loss so they can enter into the space i mean i think mk is close to profitability but i don't think it's quite there i mean it's a huge staff the way it works is that Showtime hires a um, production company to do all of their stuff, of which MK is merely a part. So they didn't hire a bunch of people for MK. They just have this existing deal with this production company. They're called Malka, and then Malka produces a bunch of the, the stuff that you see, anything related to digital Showtime, basically, on this, with some exception here or there. And so um, in terms of the costs that go into that, you know, does YouTube money make it up? I would say that you believe it or not, um, even though I have more subscribers, obviously I don't upload as much, but the MK YouTube channel will make usually like two or three X a month what I make on this one. So it's a pretty decent return, but by itself that wouldn't create the profitability. But the other part too, you have to understand is um, Brian and I are CBS employees. So CBS play, pays our salary and then Showtime pays the production costs for the show. That's how they split it. Um, you know, is the, is the ad rev from the YouTube channel or the ads in there, does it make it profitable? Again, I think now we're pretty close, we're right at the line, but um, up to this point, it's been an investment that they've made, which is why, you know, <laughs> um, never take institutional support for granted. It's very, very, my, exper my experience has been, it is very difficult to get an institution to buy into your ideas and your uh, vision for things. And, we are lucky in the sense that we have not one, but two companies doing that, um, which means there's some demands for return on investment uh, that are somewhat unusual, but I'd rather have that pressure than the pressure of, I don't have any help, you know? Uh, 
Um, let's see. Luke, are you able to make money on your breakdowns when you use UFC footage for things like dissected or technical difficulties? So the issue with that with, with fair use is in some cases you're not it's it's not a hard and fast rule that if you make money on it, therefore it's a copyright issue. To me, I use usually about no more than two minutes of total footage in fight time, which if you think about it, um, a five-round fight would be roughly what? Like 25 minutes plus everything in between, so we're talking 30 minutes or more if there's some kind of break in action or blah, blah, blah. Uh, I use about two minutes of that, and I sell ads against it, and that is not better use. I should say better implementation of fair use does not necessarily have advertising as a part of it, but just because it does, doesn't mean it's not fair use. So I'm definitely skirting the lines pretty closely, but I'm not breaking them. Uh, da -da 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 -da. After watching Usman win his title, I'm, I'm not throwing this up because these questions are sort of shorter in nature. Uh, after watching Usman win his title at the weekend, uh, at the weekend, do you think it's a matter of time before we have multiple champions in every weight from Dagestan? Every weight, I don't know about, but you know, vast representation across multiple organizations. It's already in play. All right, let's go to this one. It's a bit of a tougher one. It looks like, um, I know how this may be received and I'm honestly not trying to speak ill of the dead. The Rubble Johnson's passing has given me similar feelings as when Kobe Bryant died. I feel empathy for his family, and I'm certainly not happy that he passed, but I can't help but remember in that in life he left a trail of victims, this person writes. When people like him pass and are then fondly remembered by people who don't really know the real person, fans, and to some extent media, I often wonder what it must be like for the victims to hear others speak glowingly of their abuser. As a member of the media, how do you navigate these feelings, assuming that you have them as well? Um, and you're speaking of Kobe Bryant. Um, this is a tough one to answer. It's a tough one to answer. I'm not sure I have a good, I'm not sure I have a good response. I will tell you that like unrelated to Kobe and unrelated to Anthony Johnson, here's one thing that I, I am not a good fit for this industry. Okay. Um, I see the world very differently. I have a different set of priorities. I have a different set of things that interest me. I have a different, I, I just, I love MMA in many ways as everyone else who loves MMA, but that is the only thing that unites us. I have a very different view of things. And what MMA really, really, really hates, really hates, is someone trying to police it, even when they have good intentions, even when they have good things to say, even when, um, even when they're right, even when they're right, which is just to say I've been right every time, but you pick anybody who's picked some cause where MMA has developed some kind of toxic affinity. <laughs> Here's an easy one, the Ramzan Kadyrov stuff. It's not like people necessarily shout you down for doing it, although if you bring attention to it, but there's no real movement on it. People basically don't, in MMA, people basically don't care. I find that incomprehensible, but I've had to just, like, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Like, go look up, go look up. the rumble in the jungle and why it took place where it did. Okay. And what you're going to realize is that some, this is, again, this is not related to Anthony Johnson or Kobe Bryant, but just want to make a point here. Go look up where that was and why it existed. And when you realize that sports washing and MMA athletes being affiliated with utterly disreputable characters 
has been going on longer than I've been alive. And look at me. There's sort of a, I had a moment of, I don't know if it's clarity or cowardice or some combination of the two, but in all my time, I thought that like drawing attention to the malfeasance of actors inside MMA would be something that at times people would chafe at, particularly the powerful. What I did not expect and I did not realize at first was that the audience would also dislike it. I made a point today on, um, I did a mailbag with Brian Campbell that'll come out Friday. The reality is, dude, people always talk about, oh, what we really need is real content. People love real content. That's a fucking lie. That, that also is a lie. Dude, people love nothing other than fake. I mean, why do you think there's so much of it in our world? Fake presentations of identity, fake um, whitewashing of someone's character, sports washing or otherwise. Why do you think these kinds of things exist? Because people love it. People can't get enough of inauthentic, phony, utterly fraudulent bullshit. People love it. They can't, they just can't wait to, to, to just consume it as much as possible. In fact, the reason why you don't see content that's much more authentic is because there's no appetite for it. There's no appetite in MMA among the audience or among the community for media calling out bad actors. That doesn't mean the media shouldn't do it, but in terms of like what drives content, there's zero appetite for it. When you begin to reflect on the fact that that has been true longer than I've been alive and is still true today, it makes one wonder, well, why the fuck do I wanna talk about these things if the audience is never going to care? Like, what is the what is the principal driving action behind that? And I don't know the answer anymore, to be quite frankly. Now, getting back to this, why would it, what, what, is, what is the correlation between them? Let me just say one thing. I do believe that Anthony Rumble Johnson's death is tragic. He, he was young. I do believe that we should have a measure of grace about the dead. And I also believe and know this to be true. I think a lot of men... And again, I can't, this isn't, it's going to sound like I'm forgiving him for any of his past transgressions. It's not necessarily what I'm trying to get at or not get at, but I do believe that he probably, as he got older, I, I have reason to believe that he reflected on a lot of his actions um, and wouldn't necessarily be the same person later on in, in, in had he could have had a chance to do it over later in life. You know, I, again, I can't prove that, but I have reason to believe that. Um, and so if you want to tell the entire truth about someone's character in this sport, such as to the best you can approximate it, um, I think that you can, uh, and, or, or, and to some extent, if they're powerful enough, um, you should like the full totality of Dana White when he eventually, cause we all die, we all pass on, we all finish jobs. The totality of his of the story should be all of the good and all of the bad, but he's more of like a pronounced public figure in a position of power. I think a very sick fighter, late into his 30s, a very different person, uh, doesn't necessarily present the same kinds of issues about making sure that the public record about them is, is accurate. And also, I think there'd be massive uproar. Um, well, that's not quite true. I won't say that part. But this answer has been meandering. It's something I've been trying to deal with internally, not so much about AJ, but about broader considerations, like when someone in MMA just casually posts the N-word, you know, or totally homophobic bullshit, or you name it. Like, you can go about your day trying to correct this. The audience, in large part, doesn't want you to. 
the people in positions of power don't want you to. The advertisers don't want you to. There is massive people like, why doesn't the MMA media do this stuff? There's not only is there not an incentive to not do it, there's an incentive to shy away from it for, for no other reason than career longevity. Now, you could say that's cowardice, and in many ways, it certainly is. Um, I don't have a good answer for you on this question. I just tend to think when Dana White eventually passes, if I'm still, you know, covering the sport, you, you want to make sure you say all the truly good things about him, truly accurate things about him, the truly negative things. I think a young, a relatively young man um, on his deathbed, who I have, you know, reason to believe, I think would live life a little bit differently. You know, what, what, do, what do you say to, to people he had a domestic violence incident with? I, I don't really know. I don't really know. I don't have a good answer for you. And there probably should be more of an inventorying of that, despite um, all of the sadness uh, about their death. There probably should be. Um, whether or not that should be the focus of it, I think is a slightly different issue. But I will tell you, man, I have really, I don't know what to do anymore. I thought that, I thought people cared about malfeasance in the industry and they don't. <laughs> they don't. They don't at all zero zero why doesn't the mma media talk about this mostly because the vast majority of you don't care and when people do talk about it in media it's just nothing but harassment on the other side of it and if this has been going on for decades you get to a point like me when i've been here long enough and you're like what even is the point what like i don't even understand what the point is anymore it, it is it does nothing but cause um, difficulty to the person trying to raise these issues. I will say this. I will say one thing. If a politician dies or someone who is a major political figure, I do think it is extremely important that you tell the full story of their record, right? Like when John McCain dies or Antonin Scalia dies or pick anyone on the left side who dies, whatever, Jimmy Carter, he's eventually going to die. You and, you You have to tell the full story of what happened to them to and the good and the bad these are people that had a massive influence on the public and just getting into hey geography is um is i think deeply unethical in, the, in those cases you know getting down to the case of anthony johnson against a little less clear but let me leave you just with this dude the mma industry generally speaking is not interested in the truth they're not here or there, yes. The truth of who is the best, yes. But MMA, the industry, partly because it had to deal with so much difficulty to elevate itself, loves to celebrate itself. MMA loves nothing more than to pat itself on the back. And there is close to zero appetite, close to zero, about um, anyone in the media, whether they're right or they're wrong, trying to tell uncomfortable truths about reality. There's virtually no appetite for it. And not only that, there's massive rejection of it. So if you're wondering why certain stories get covered more than others, or why there's not a lot of coverage of X or of Y, you can always go back and reflect on this. So that MMA loves, loves, loves to buy into its own mythology. Perhaps more than any other industry I've ever seen. Certainly boxing is not like this. Those, in fact, those people are like jaundiced and kind of, you know, about the whole thing. In MMA, it's not that case at all. 
They love to believe their own mythology. They love to believe their own lies. They love to believe their own back padding and the, and the righteousness of it and the greatness of it and the beauty of it. They, they, there's zero tolerance. And there's just not a lot of internal reflection in the industry more generally. It's these guys are prize fighters. Let them do what they want. They're animal. They're born animals is the attitude. That's not my attitude, but they're just born animals. Let them do what they want. And who gives a shit? And to me, that's a deeply nihilistic and moronic worldview, but it is a predominant one. It is a predominant one. How do you fight against that? You tell me. I, I haven't figured it out. All right. Uh, would you consider having a designated book recommendation section at the end of the live chats? It doesn't have to turn into the book club, but I definitely have enjoyed the books you've recommended. I read all the Tim Wu books. Yeah, good. For, that's awesome. And I'm finishing Drug Use for Grownups based on your recommendation. Climat is next in the queue. Yeah, you know what? I might just, uh, I, I think what I'll do is I'll probably put together like uh, a web page on like, my sub stack is uh, dormant, but what I might do is just like put it up there so everyone can see and then make a choice about whether they want to read these books and what they're about, like a quick review or something. Um, I think people might be, maybe there's an appetite for that. I don't really know. Uh, let's get to a different one. Uh, questions about whether BC is going to do a live chat. He was going to do one this week. I think he punted to next week, but yeah, he's going to do one. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to not mispronounce this name, but apparently I keep doing it. Yuri Prohachka, Pro, Pro, Prohaz, Prohajka. I'm trying to get better about it. I will look into it more thoroughly. Uh, considering his samurai Viking aesthetic, his looks, fighting style, and finishing abilities, and his whole persona, how popular do you think he would have been if he had fought in pride during its golden days? Let me throw this up for you here. And how far do you think he would go in terms of achievements? Um, he gets hit a lot, but he's got an iron chin, at least for now. I think he would have been massively popular. He would have been one of the cornerstones of pride's middleweight division, which was 205 back in the day. He is, um, and the fact that he, he, he already fought in Japan, which kind of already tells you that the Japanese already had their eye on him anyway. Yeah. They would have built him into something special for sure. How well he would have done, you know, that was the heyday of Shogun and everything else. Maybe he beats them. Maybe he doesn't, but, um, he probably would have been competitive. And at a bare minimum, I think he would have been revered, revered. He has exactly the kind of weird, awesome, sort of brooding intensity that they love. All right, here we go. LT, every other week we hear about a new prospect from various promotions that should fight in the UFC. However, we often refer to the UFC as being reserved for the most elite talents. Given the current influx of younger new-gen prospects, what is your take on how qualified a fighter should be when trying to enter the UFC? There's no hard and fast rule, as you can well imagine, about whether someone is qualified for the UFC. Things I tend to look for is like on their record, um, obviously number of fights, um, finishes, right? But even then, you got to be careful, right? Because I've seen so many guys. This is less true than it used to be as, as, as the sport has developed. But back in the day, it used to be the case where you would like get someone and uh, they'd have like nine fights and all would be first round stoppage. And that's just red flag territory, right? If, you, if you've got nine fights on the regional scene and all of them are first round stoppages, you probably heard me say this before. What it means is that you're very tough and you're very good, but you're not fighting the right people. Like it shouldn't be that easy through nine fights. Um, 
that someone should be able to last at least to the second round or take it to a decision. So, so that's a bit of a red flag in terms of ultimate upside. But I tend to look for well-roundedness, number of fights, finishes. Um, I also tend to look for not just the results themselves, but what the tape shows in terms of the progress of their development. How clean is the technique? How wide-ranging is it? Fight IQ. Um, and, you know, obviously the certain promotions, like if you come through Cage Warriors and you become a champion there, you know, you probably have been tested in a number of meaningful ways to let us know you're ready for the UFC. Certainly you don't have to do that. There can be other ways to get there, but uh, how qualified a fighter should be. You should probably have, you don't necessarily need to, probably have double-digit fights. Um, you need to have been training for, you know, several years, five or more, typically, something like that although there are going to be exceptions. Um, you, need to have, you need to have some winning experience in an a elite regional promotion, uh, and the tape has to show development to a certain maturity level, I think. This is why some of my issues with Raul Ro Rosas Jr. is that he is, has a lot of ability, but and he might end up being something great. I, this is not me saying he won't, what I, the, again, getting back to people just, they, they love buying into the hype and the majesty and the magic of something, whether or not there is the evidence for it. He clearly is talented and he might end up being the champion. But to me, people arguing that the case is like a slam dunk is so far from reality. There's a lot on tape that shows up to me as a bit of an issue. Um, he just kind of bulldozes past it with, you know, because he does have a lot of ability. Uh, and he is quite good. And again, he may go he may go quite far. But the idea that that's written into stone or something is like there's a lot of work he has to do. And uh, which is normal. Like you wouldn't expect a 17 year old to have this done. I mean, that's not you know what I mean? Like it's not it's not even an insult. It's just like he's 17. What the fuck do you expect him to look like? You know, even if he's been training since he was 11 or 12 or even before that. So um those are the sort of the 10, you know, the kind of things I tend to look for. Talent maturity, well-roundedness, experience on an elite stage for the regional scene, number of fights, number of finishes, that kind of thing. All right, let's get to this one. This is an interesting one. God damn it. Uh, hey, Luke, would a more modern way of thinking about styles of fighting be thinking of problem posers versus problem solvers. So some fighters like Lomachenko or Volkanovsky, in my view, are what you'd refer to as problem posers. They present problems for the opponent to solve at increasingly higher frequencies to overwhelm their opponent and often take the initiative as opposed to problem solvers who use their given skill sets to work their way through the problems presented by opponents and making adaptations. Which do you see becoming more prevalent as the game continues to evolve? I don't, I don't, I don't agree with the framing at all, really. Hang on a second here. Let me just make sure everything's all right. Yeah. They present problems for the opponent to solve at increasingly higher frequencies to overwhelm their opponent and often take the initiative as opposed to the problem solvers. No, I don't really agree with that at all. They have a certain style which they then present to their... No, 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 no. I don't, I don't agree with this. Um, so Lomachenko and Volkanovsky have a certain style that looks like the opponent is having difficulty adapting to. That's especially going to be the case where it's something like 
Volkanovsky versus Korean Zombie or the third meeting between Max and Volkanovsky, right? In that case, you might see it that way. But that's not how I see it. In fact, the story of the first two fights is that a guy like Volkanovsky had to make adaptations to win, especially, especially in the second fight. He's got a style that I do agree when he sets it the outside, when he, when he sets it, he's got feints and movement and it's hard to tell what's coming or going. That part is the problem posing part. That's true. But the best guys are still going to be able to, the, the, the initial blanket entry, most of the good guys are going to have some answer for that. It's what he does in response. In fact, he even told me he waits to see, he will throw it out. He'll, he's a fisherman. He fishes, he waits to see what's on the lure, what's getting bites and what's not, and then makes a change, right? So you're right to the extent that when he starts out, there's a certain amount of difficulty. And sometimes even just that basic amount is too much Korean zombie. But in general, to me, what sets Lomachenko apart and what sets Volkanovsky apart are their in-between or even mid-round adjustments. Dude, they are very much problem solvers. Very, very, very much. Not when the opponent is overmatched. You don't see it there. But when the opponent is a worthy adversary, it is the thing that separates them. Right? If Lomachenko had to fight rounds 4 through 12, the way in which he was fighting 1 through 3, he would not be nearly as successful. If Volkanovsky had to fight rounds three through five, the way he fought rounds one and two, or even one, two, and three, he would not be nearly as successful. The magic of those guys is they have they are difficult to beat, but they get increasingly difficult to beat as they make the correct adjustments between fights between rounds. It's like the question of Mayweather, too. Like, that's what the thing that set Mayweather apart. Problem. I mean, that's a problem solver if ever there was one. So it's not one or the other in the sense that they can only be one or they can only be the other. There's a blend here. But to me, the most important part is not the initial thing that they show. It's what they're doing at the end. Tell me what they did at the end of the fight. Tell me what they did to get to that final hump. Because those changes through the course of the fight, that's what makes them who they are. We've talked about it a million times. Changing strategy, changing tactics, coming up with different entries or all the different things they need to to make it work between rounds is bonkers difficult to do correctly, especially at the championship level. And those fuckers can do it. So problem posers, of course, of course, problem solvers for sure, for sure. Um, let's see. How would you bet? I don't bet in a Hamzat Costa fight and how confident would you be in your bet? Okay. So if someone said I had to bet a hundred bucks, Right, I had to bet a hundred bucks on Hamza versus Costa, and we're just voting up or down. Fuck, man, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I I might take a flyer on Hamzat, but I'm not wildly confident about that. I think he would exchange a lot with Costa, which could be dangerous because he's a heavy, heavy, heavy puncher. This is not Gilbert at 170. He used to be a 155-er. This is a guy who could fight at 205 if he needed to. He is heavy, heavy, heavy fucking hitter. He can take a lot of punishment. 
So that I don't know how well that would go. Um, could go well. It's hard to say on the ground. Like, can he consistently get Costa down and hold him down? Maybe, maybe. I don't know. That's a tough one, man. If it's five round, and Costa's gas tank. I don't know. I, I'd have to see the odds. I'd have to see the odds. I'm. I, That's a tough fight. That's a t- that's a hard one. To- that's a great question. That's a really difficult one for me to answer. All right, let's see here. Luke, how long, if ever, do you think the UFC will get back to the pre-COVID scheduling of traveling all over the country overseas instead of traveling for pay-per-view and the rest at the Apex? Well, they have done some fight nights in, in um, normal places. They did fight nights in Texas. They did a fight night in Long Island. There's been many other ones. So I spoke to some UFC staff when I was there in July for the 276 card. And I kind of asked them, are you guys going to go on the road more in 2023? Their indication to me was yes. Their indication to me was that going on the road next year is a much bigger priority. So pre-COVID, the thing is, it's not even about like COVID restrictions anymore, which largely don't even exist. I mean, in some places they might or whatever. I think Canada has dropped them or is about to drop them. But it's more about the fact that the Apex has been a real boon for them. I mean, people are kind of sick of the Apex shows, but having your own facility in Vegas, you're not reliant on anyone else, just your own infrastructure. And you can do these big shows on the road. And then you can kind of just, you know, pitch whatever's left to meet your ESPN obligations to get your chunk of change for doing a requisite number of shows at the end of the year. I mean, this is a no brainer in many ways, especially if there's venue issues, or we want to go to I'll make up a place we want to go to Arizona, but we can't get to the venue or it's booked that weekend because Taylor Swift doing whatever the fuck she's doing. It just makes so much more sense for them. So it's not even about COVID regulations, as best I can tell, for the most part. Again, Canada up to this point notwithstanding. In 2023, I think the biggest issue is just going to be that they found a new formula by virtue of what they had to go through because of COVID restrictions. And then as a consequence, this is the new reality. So the answer is they're definitely going to, what they told me was they're definitely going on the road much more in 2023. But will it ever get pre-COVID level? I I just I, I I'd be I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised. All right. How did you weigh the decision of leaving your previous career, which I assume would have led to greater stability, wealth, and financial security for your family, to follow your passion for MMA? Curious as to how you framed the issue in your mind and what led to your decision. Man, it was not difficult. It was not difficult at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, but I am proud of the money that I make now. I'm not a rich person, but uh, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. And um, I'm happy about that. I don't really, I don't even know what to buy if I could, to be honest with you. I mean, I guess I'd get a nicer car or something. I have a 2015 Mazda CX-5, you know, that's all I really have. I don't even, I have, uh, I don't even have surround sound on that fucking thing, you know. I don't want for much. I and I'm and I'm and I'm happy for that. My kid is well taken care of. Um I I don't need a lot. So it's not like could I make more money if I had stayed in speech writing, which inevitably leads to lobbying. Could I have made more money? Certainly I would have made a lot more money doing that than this. But I, I I'm well taken care of and I'm happy about that and I'm proud of that. So that's really not the issue for me. Um guys, I hated it. I mean, I fucking hated it. You have to understand something about Washington, D.C., and if you've been watching this chat for a long time, you've heard this, so I, please, please forgive me, but if you're not new to this, 
the answer is very simple. Dude, the only people in this city, right? When I say the city, I don't mean the people who live next to me. That's not what I mean. I mean the carpetbaggers from out of town, the people who want to affect the centers of power, the people that want to pull on the levers of government. So not, not my neighbors, right? Not the people who call this place actually home. I mean the people who do business here. Very, very different, right? There's some overlap, but it's different. The only people like that who need help in the city are people who are doing like incredibly fucked up shit, right? And I said this before, I had clients that were coming, they were being fed to me in the place where I was working. It was like the logging industry, the oil industry, um, the power and light industry, like, uh, and, and, and of course power and, you know, uh, electricity is by itself just fine. But this was only after, like, for example, I'll just put my cards on the table. I had a major state organization hire me that provided, um, uh, electricity to a state. It was the, it was the utility company and they had massively fucked shit up in response to a hurricane. You can probably guess which state it was. Um, there's a few that could be affected by that. And they had massively, massively, massively fucked up the response to a hurricane. And they wanted to hire me to figure out better messaging to tell their customers about why it actually wasn't a big deal. Like understand, like they didn't hire me to come up with some kind of, not that I could do it, but they didn't, they were not interested in like being a better utility company. They were interested in sounding like a better utility company and they wanted to hire me to do it. And I was like, you know, and there were people in that state that hadn't had power for weeks at the, uh, this is at the time anyway, this was a while ago, but I was like, dude, what the fuck am I doing with my life? I don't want to like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do this at all. Now I ended up here where I just told you that like no one has any, I won't say no one, people don't have much of a moral compass or a moral conscience in combat sports. But even then we're talking about what I would consider relative to that low level offenders. You know, I don't know how that can compare to what the oil industry is doing or the logging industry is doing. And it's not that all of the people involved in this aren't always criminal or there's no benefit to the oil industry. There's no benefit to the logging industry. They, they, they do serve in the contemporary world some utility. There is some value to what they contribute. But what they wanted me for was to cover for their fuck ups. And I was like, dude, this is not what I want to do with my life. This is not, this is not at all. I had to get the fuck out. Um, and, you know, I was so stressed. I've talked about this before. All my fingernails fell out. It was crazy. I went to the doctor and, he, and I tried to explain to him like where my fingernails were. I still had a couple hanging on by a thread. And um, he had told me he'd only read about what had happened to me in a textbook. He'd actually had never even seen it. Because um, I was so like morally horrified by what I was being asked to do. Um, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So you're asking about like, you know, what was the strategy or the plan? The plan was to get the fuck out at all costs. That was the plan. Didn't put any more thought into it than that. <laughs> Honestly, I was just like, I got to go. I got to go. This is, uh, this is not, this is not for me. Okay. Let's see here. Hey Luke. Uh, what do you think of the, what do you think of the criticism that hosting all these fights at the apex or the UFC's way of diluting fight cards in order to avoid accountability from fans? I don't know what that means, but like the reason why the apex is so valuable is that remember the UFC has to turn, this is the whole COVID thing. This is why 
listen, nobody is interested in relitigating COVID again and the pandemic again. And I'm not trying to, I swear on my life, I'm not trying to do that. But follow me for just a second. You can disagree if you want, but follow me for just a second. I promise you, I'm looking at you right now through this lens in this camera. I'm trying to talk to you honestly, and I'm trying to talk to you in good faith. I promise I am. There are many dimensions to why the UFC did what they did. But one of the major drivers of the reason why they want to go to Tachi Palace and everything else and not accept that commissions at the time didn't even want to regulate that shit when they didn't have a clear sense of how to regulate a sporting event in a world filled with COVID. Now they do, but they didn't before. Was that they owed the ESPN a number of cards every year. If they don't deliver on that, they don't get the, they don't get the money. Like it's 750 million annually. Now I'm not sure if they'd only get a part of it or what, but like they need that money that the contracted revenue is used, used to be pay-per-view was the major driver. And I think now contracted revenue is the major one in, in totality between like domestic and international and everything else contracted revenue and uh, has reduced the volatility in their business plan. It has reduced the volatility in their, in their future. It's been a boon in many ways for them. Um, but they have, they, they have, the, the trains have to leave the station on time. If they don't, well, now they're in trouble. So to me, like this whole idea, like, well, they just, they were, you know, this, again, the nobility of, of just driving through the pandemic and not accepting anyone else. You, you can decide if that's what you want to be true. Maybe there's some truth to it uh, in the sense of like, you know, we want to keep people at work. I'm, I'm sure there's some truth to that, but a big part of it that you cannot take away is that they had to turn in a number of shows to get the money. They couldn't take two months off as a consequence. So they just wanted to plow through as best they could. Um, and they eventually found a way to figure it all out through Florida and then eventually in other places. But, but that, that was the issue there. So like getting back to the question, what is the apex for at this point? Well, before it was the kind of like the Alamo. Now it's a different one. Now they have these pay-per-view cards are going to put out like basically once a month or so. Fight night cards on the road for 2023. We'll see how many there are. The apex now is just this reservoir for, okay, how many other cards do we owe ESPN this year? Let's make sure we have enough on the calendar. Let's make sure we have enough fighters on the roster to fill these cards, even if it's not like traditional UFC quality, just so we can get the designated number of uh, dollars in our contract with ESPN. That's really what this comes down to. So this is like, well, you know, if you don't, the, the cards you don't watch are the best ones. Bull fucking shit. Like sometimes that's true. Often it's not. Often it's not. Often it's not true at all. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be true. Not every card has to be great. Not every card has to be sensational. They can't be. Not for Bellator, not for UFC, not for one, not for PFL, not top rank, not Golden Boy. Of course, it's it's silly to expect it to be that way. But like now the apex is very valuable. Now they can make sure, come hell or high water, they can issue out a number of shows to keep up to get the money. Um, thoughts on Usman Nurmagomedov's performance? He's 24 now. What do you think he looks like when Islam retires and Usman joins the UFC at age 29? <laughs> I would like to see Usman. He's 24. I would like to see him invite a little bit more risk, um, but he looks to be the genuine article times a billion. Um, I have extremely high hopes for Usman Nurmagomedov. Extremely high. Uh, what countries have you traveled to as an adult and which would you like to go? Much love from Germany. Well, Germany would be one. I've been to Berlin and Munich. So let's see, as an adult, as an adult. All right, Germany. 
the Netherlands, France, uh, Spain, England, Ireland. Um, I've not been to Italy, Croatia, Israel, uh, Jordan. Um, Switzerland, obviously Colombia, Canada, uh, El Salvador, Honduras. Um, where else have I been? I'm trying to think out loud. Oh, oh Turkey. Okay, oh, I mean, how could I forget Turkey? Been to Turkey, uh, Lebanon. Um, now this is pr- this is post eighteen years old, so pre there's a bunch more, but. Um, let's see, Lebanon, we're all Greece. Um, I'm sure I'm missing some that I've been to. Uh, Puerto Rico is not a separate country. It's the United States, but it's certainly culturally quite distinct. Um, and we mistreat them terribly. What else have I been to as an adult? I'm trying to think if there's any other, I mean, I'm sure I'm missing some, but, um, that's a, basic overview of where i've been that's a basic since since turning 18 uh as you can see big gap in the asian countries i've missed if we're talking pre-18 then you can just add a whole shitload more japan um saudi arabia Qatar, or qatar um jesus um a ton of other places uh, i have to look at my passport at that, from that age but uh yeah a bunch a bunch i've been lucky I've been very lucky. Okay, here we go. How does Jack Dela do against future opponents ranked 10 to 15 in their welterweight division? So on the striking level, Jack Dela Madalena does really well against them. There are still some questions, not so much about his takedown defense because we have seen it tested a little bit and it looked good. But against those guys, let me pull up the rankings, see exactly who we're talking about here because I might be talking out of my ass. Let's see. Pull that up so you can see too. Hey, look at that. More more crypto shit. Boy, huh? The crypto fellows have been taking some motherfucking L's recently, huh? And it ain't even done yet. Boy, FTX. Mm. I am so glad I don't see those stupid ass NFTs. If you bought an NFT, man, you need to have a nice long look in the mirror and be like, what the fuck was I doing with my life buying this dumb ass shit? That obviously made no sense was the industry filled with grifters, filled with scams, filled with nonsense. And now it is all burning down and it ain't done yet. It ain't done yet. I'm not sure what's going to be left of crypto when it's all done. Binance. Oh, Binance will last. Word. Let's see. It might. Let's see about that. Very glad people proselytizing crypto no longer is a thing I have to consistently tolerate anymore. Good Lord. What a fucking ridiculous thing. All right. Anyway, so we're talking about uh, welterweights. So here's 10 through 15. Shavkat Rachmanov, yeah, I don't like his chances there. Jorge Masvidal could be interesting. Neil Mag- no, Magny is a tough fight, though, but that could be interesting. Kies is a tough fight. Pereira is a tough fight. And Rodriguez. So I think a few of those are winnable in this space. But right now, getting those fights might be a little bit early. I don't think he's far from that. I don't think he's far from that at all. Um, on the str- on the striking level, he's peers with those guys and then some. It's the rest of his game. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? Hide current comment. Thank you. I don't know what's happening there. Um, hiding the rest of those. 
hiding the rest of those is going to be an issue. What am I saying? Hiding um, the rest of the of the game, unrelated to his striking, I think is still in need of some development. Like like they gave him who was it? Danny Roberts. He just fought um, a very good fighter, but predominantly striking based. So they're giving him fights. I know the one before that was less so that, but they're still they're still trying to you know give him time to get those other parts of his game up to speed. They're already pretty good. Don't misunderstand me. They're already pretty good, but like, you know, next level kind of a thing. All right, let's get back to these questions. Um, let's see. Have you listened to the latest hardcore history by Dan Carlin? No. He talks about boxing being the only sport where athletes from the past would have an advantage today. One of the things he talks about was boxers back then had to be much better defensive boxers and avoid being hurt so they could fight and earn enough to live. Would love to get yours and BC's thoughts on that. <coughs> I would need to see what evidence he provides for that. I have an extremely hard time believing they'd be better defensive boxers. They might be more consistently defensive. I don't know if they'd be better. Like, in other words, their game is more built around defense. <coughs> I have a very hard time believing that modern fighters wouldn't get through that. Sorry. Uh, okay, I'll do my best here uh, with the best information that I have, which is to say not very good. Luke, hope you and your family are doing well. I just want to ask if you have any advice about navigating workplaces and how to develop a good relationship with your boss. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of a quiet guy, and you put quiet, and wondering if I should be sucking up to the boss. It seems to work for a lot of people, or should I just let my work speak for itself? Any thoughts would be welcome. Okay, so I'm going to work under a certain premise here. I don't know if the premise is correct, but I'm going to work under the premise just the same. The premise would be you like your job, you like the work, and you want to stay there. For some people, that would not be the case. Either they like the work, but they don't like the workplace, or they don't like the job or something. Here, you're in a different spot. Here, you're trying to figure out, hey, I kind of like where I'm at, but I, I want more. Um, I don't think this is a world where you should... Two things I would, two things I would give as sort of general advice here, because I've had... You know, I want to be clear. I had a falling out with Vox Media, which I'm really not going to get into anymore. But I did not. I had a. Uh, I did not have one with SiriusXM. In fact, I had a really great relationship with them. And if there's ever a future possibility where I could work together with them, uh, you know, who knows what the future holds? I I would say yes in a second. Strongly encourage anyone who's in the industry. Do you want to work at SiriusXM? You, it has my highest recommendation. I was extremely well taken care of there, and I have nothing but fond memories of it. So, um, you know, I, I think I people might know that I've had a little bit more of a falling out with with uh, Vox Media, but I want to be clear that's not some kind of universal thing that's with me. Um, to answer this question, under the premise of which I stated it, what I would say is um, two things. One, you need to make sure you're doing an excellent job. If you don't know if you're doing an excellent job, you need to tell your boss or you should ask him. What more could I be doing? What what are some areas of improvement? Like get a clear evaluation of things. And also I would just tell this person, male or female, whoever it is, what your goals are, what you want. Like this is not a world where you can keep quiet about those kinds of things. This is a world of direct action with a plan and you need to declare. I mean, maybe not tell them everything, but in sort of broad strokes, your boss should know what you want. Your boss should know what you're aiming for. You should know what you're aiming for. You should have a clear goal in mind. You should have a clear plan of, plan of action about how you plan to get there. 
you should be exercising that plan. If there's any confusion about it, you should be sitting down with your boss and be like, look, man, I really like this place. I want to succeed here. I want to thrive here. Let's let's develop a roadmap for me to get there. Um, if that doesn't work, we, you could try other things, but you should be doing hard work. You should know exactly what the hard work is you should be doing. Like hard work doesn't mean doing a bunch of bullshit that's not essential to the mission. Hard work means um, I, I know exactly the kind of work that's impactful that will get me to the next stage that will the company will enjoy and be rewarded for. Um, what skills do I need to acquire to do a better job of that? And then go in training on the own on your own, like, oh, I need to learn Photoshop, taking Photoshop classes, or I need to learn whatever, whatever the skills are you need to get, taking the time to go do those things and then putting a plan into action. But never, ever, ever assume your boss understands what you want. They don't. For the, for the most part, they don't. doesn't mean they're bad people. They just, they can't, they're not fucking mind readers, man. So get out there and tell them. Tell them exactly what you want, what the plan is, how are you going to get those skills, and and begin to execute. And January is right around the corner. I know, you know, New Year's resolutions are kind of silly, but you have a month and some change to come up with a plan. Have a sit down with your boss. Talk to them. Hey, here's where I'm at. Here's where I want to go. Let's, let's, let's find a way to get me there. And if they tell you, you need to work on this, you need to work on that, take them. Listen to that. They're telling you exactly what you need. Now, again, we're assuming that they're working in good faith and they're being honest, which is not necessarily always the case. But, but they're, yeah, put the work in, tell your boss what it is, understand the, understand the various steps to get there and execute and execute. And if you're really serious about it, you, chances are you'll probably go pretty far. This is an interesting one. I did see this. I can't believe there's no Elon questions. I could have sworn I saw one. Uh, hey, Luke, what do you think of uh, Cutter's, by the way, people say Qatar. I, I was taught it was Cutter, but I, I don't fucking know. Decision to ban alcohol two days before the World Cup started and their human rights violations in general. Saludos desde Miami. Um, okay, well, it's a couple things here. One, the decision to ban the alcohol. I mean, just be clear about this. Anheuser-Busch is going to sue FIFA into oblivion, right, for breach of contract. So they're fucked. That's the first thing I would say. Like, they're, FIFA is going to get... There's going to be some kind of massive settlement here. Let's be very clear about this. There's going to be a huge settlement to get this fixed um, because they're almost certainly a breach of contract and and probably heavily so. So that's the first problem. Um, people are like, it's their country, it's their rules. Fine, that's true. And when I go to other countries, I, I obey their rules. I understand that. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to think the rules are like enlightened. And I've seen people being like, if you can't go to a game and without enjoying a beer, then you can't enjoy the game. Please shut the fuck up. I'm an adult. Yes, it is certainly possible to enjoy the game without drinking a beer. In fact, most times I go to ball games, I might have a one beer or less. Sometimes I'm nothing, nothing at all. I don't need the beer in that sense. But the idea behind drugs, let's be very clear about this. I don't have any stigma behind drugs. Perhaps you do. I don't. I think drugs in general, certainly in intelligent use cases, they make human life better. Uh, if you drink too much of things or you have too much of them, these are non-intelligent use cases. That's when problems begin to emerge. But does like why do people smoke marijuana and then watch movies that make them laugh because they makes them enjoy it more why do people drink a beer at sporting games it might loosen you up to a certain degree where it makes it certainly more enjoyable not for everyone not all the time everyone's going to be a little bit different but that is a common human experience why do people drink coffee in the morning it gives them a buzz it gives them a jolt it gives them going it makes them feel better do drugs make experiences better that's why people take them there's nothing wrong with that humans have been doing it for as long as civilization has been in place. Go look up the history of, of uh, essentially where coffee comes from, all the way dating back to, you know, I think, I think it's the first, uh, there, was a, there was a drink that the Mayans made, no, excuse me, the Aztecs made, I believe, that dates back 
you know, I mean, we're talking, <laughs> we're talking a long time before Starbucks came around, right? Um, and it was a different version than what we understand the modern coffee to be. It was a little bit more like cocoa, uh, but you get the idea. Like drugs make life better in intelligent use cases. This idea that you can't thread this needle, it's either one or the other. It's just, this is the opinion of very simple people. Very simple people who just don't have a grasp on nuance. So that's the first thing I'd say about that. The human rights violations, I don't even know what, you know. I am sympathetic to the argument. It's like the U.S. really should not be lecturing people about uh, human rights, especially on a week where someone took a gun and went into a gay club and shot up people. Still don't quite know the motivation. And so like the Pulse nightclub shooting, which people thought was a hate crime, turned out to not be one. And so we should be careful about that. But, you know, we've got to get our own house in order. At the same time, I've seen people like, you know, I saw Grant Wall wanted to wear a, uh, some kind of pride shirt into a stadium. I, and I try not to make a show about my views in that way uh, on this podcast i will because it's sort of i think important for the audience to know but like in public i don't i don't really do that shit for the most part but uh i saw people being like well it's their country it's their rules well first of all fifa uh, fifa and um no sorry fifa and then fifa had guarantees uh in place with the qatari government that that would be allowed that people would be allowed and then they, the qatari government just changed their views last minute on the whole thing and it's like well i mean you know if you told people you were going to do this and now you're changing it like this is not about respecting different cultures this is about you you know this is about you just changing your fucking mind in bullshit ways that's the i'd say that as well and then the last thing i'd say is you know i saw someone got like a million retweets i forgot who it was and they were saying something like you know the the west thinks that it has a purchase on enlightenment okay fair enough we do not have a purchase on enlightenment again if you're going to go to another country you got to respect those rules that's kind of the way that it goes but if your rule is that you don't respect or recognize gay life in society, I, I, I'm not going to treat that with respect, right? I'm not going to view that particular way of looking at the world as enlightened. You don't get credit for being smart in a different way, right? You, sorry, <laughs> I, you know, not recognizing the humanity of people is not a uh, alternate way of navigating life it's a inferior and frankly dangerous way to do that so you know whether someone should make a big show of it after the qatari government tells fifa to go fuck itself is a different story but you know asking for well we you know the west doesn't have a purchase on the truth or moral um you know given given what the west has done with you know, ruining iraq essentially and and abandoning afghanistan the way that it did like these are people that should pause their tongues before they lash out at other countries yeah fair enough but if the argument is going to be you know, our way of handling homosexuals in society is a perfectly valid way. You can take that shit to another sucker. No one, no, no, this is nonsense. I'm not going to play this moral relativism game either, dude. I've been to these countries before. Like you're not, you're not going to sell me on the idea that this is a view that should be taken as seriously as treating them with humanity and respect. Like go fuck yourself. This is utterly nonsensical and, and only someone deep in the throes of you know, the constraints of Abrahamic religions, whether it's Christianity or Islam or Judaism, only someone deep in the throes of these archaic things would even suggest that I take that seriously. And I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that I do not. All right, where are we? Okay, let's go to the uh, paid questions such that they exist. Again, if you didn't put one in, please mis don't misunderstand me. I appreciate everyone who shows up. But for the ones who did, uh, let's let's get to see what they got. All right. 
Uh, let's see. So Kathleen Sparks just put in a donation. Thank you, Kathleen. I appreciate it. Okay. Russell, Luke, what is your level of interest in the Pantera re reunion tour with Zach Wilde on guitar and Charlie Benante on drums? Uh, all in. <laughs> I am I am all in. on the. I know the Pantera is over in, uh, I think they've been in like South America. I know they're heading to Europe sometime in the summer of next year. I don't know when they're going to come to this area, but like whenever they do, you can you can count me in as being there. So all in, all in, 100% uh, all in. Can't wait to see it. Obviously, it won't be the same, but that doesn't mean it can't be great. And I'm looking forward to something great. Uh, let's see. Just a formal invitation to hang out with the donks in the YouTube live chat when BC does his live chat show. Appreciate the content. Okay. You, you can tell him that. Deontay Wilder did 75K pay-per-views. Is that a good or bad number these days? That's a real bad number. But, but here's the deal with Deontay Wilder. He's just not going to fight on network TV. Like, it's impossible to afford him without some money coming back the other way. And 75K is not a lot. It's actually quite low. Like, who the hell wanted to pay for him to beat Robert Hellenius in less than a round? But um, you can't afford him otherwise. Like, this is just the way to afford him. So it sucks, but it's kind of where we're at. Uh, let's see. Nacho. Thanks, Nacho. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. How damning is it that BC said that Wakanda Forever is one of the best movies he's ever seen? Not an indictment on the movie, but on BC. Okay, but the thing is, I don't know what to say about this because I've not seen the movie. I, I and I'm and more to the point, I've not even read spoiler-free reviews. Now I, I get what you're saying. Like, I'll say this, dude. You know my guy Alex Bahunin. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. My man, he's so cool. He um, he does this like humanizing athlete stories like and, and it's always like, you know, favorite drink, favorite color, favorite video game, favorite blah, blah. One of the questions is favorite movies. I got to tell you, an alarming number of people put superhero movies as their favorite movies. Again, I don't really I mean, I love I, dude, I love superhero movies, but they're not my favorite. Like they're not even close. Um, you know, we got to get we got to get MMA fighters to watch some stuff. Outside of that, we got to get B.C. I love BC. We got to get BC to watch some stuff outside. So if the if the argument is, well, how could a superhero movie be your favorite movie? I, I don't know what to say. I've not seen it. That seems a little silly, but I got to see the fucking movie first. I got to see the movie first, and which I'm going to. Uh, let's see. Oh, Argentina versus Saudi Arabia. What's the MMA equivalent? Dude, I'm told that that Saudi Arabian team was slept on a little bit. Uh, I follow a, a podcast um is it the u.s soccer podcast i saw the clip on social media i didn't listen to the full episode so this is why i can't qu get it quite right i'm told that in the regional competition the saudi arabian team did really well this year under this french guy who is their uh is their head coach uh the guy who took the ivory coast to the african championship and some other in zambia as well um i forget his name but um this is a surprise to be clear it's a massive upset but I am, I, I can, I'll find it. I'll find it and I'll, I'll share it. But there is a, uh, there was a, it's like two Hispanic guys that I follow and they do a podcast. And one of them six months ago was like, dude, the Saudi Arabian team is real nice. It's real nice. So what's the equivalent? It's a little bit, I mean, Holly Ronda is not quite right, right? It's more like uh, Danny Lefevre versus, um, oh God, who did Danny Lefevre beat up? Benji Raddick. It's a little more like that. I mean, that's not quite right either because Benji Raddick is, was never a championship caliber fighter, but it's something like that. 
Would it be a smart move for Pereira to challenge for the light heavyweight title as it would extend his reign of middleweight title by proxy and could be winnable for him? If he could get it, sure. I mean, he might lose there too. But, you know, if Glover wins, it creates complications. Does USADA outsource testing for fighters in foreign countries? Not My understanding is no. My understanding is that they fly people there. Now, here's the, here's the difference. So in the Olympics, right, uh, USADA would test the American athletes and whatever the relevant regional bot, whatever the, the, whatever the USADA equivalent is for Germany, those people, it's its own German organization, they would test their athletes and the French version would test their own and the Armenian and then the, the Nigerian, whatever. So their own, their own version of that is what tests. And the problem is that like, you can imagine that the, you know, pick some poor country, not even out of malfeasance, like Thailand, the, their version of it, they're not going to have the same budget that USADA is to test their guys. So there's this unevenness for the Olympics between what USADA does to American athletes and what blah, 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 does to another country. To say nothing of what we saw with the Russian uh, program being just, you know, totally a shambolic in, in its uh, anti-doping sincerity. So that's, those are two major problems is that these other countries, their, their versions of USADA have no budget, no ability to do this kind of stuff and test in any kind of meaningful way. And then, you know, the American athletes are under the gun of a much more strenuous testing um, group. Uh, you've previously expressed your dislike of stoicism. Is there a particular reason why or it just never appealed or edified you? It's very basic, but it works for whoever needs it. No, I mean, on the level that it, you know what? I'll tell you, I've never told you guys this. I will tell you this now. Um, I will tell you why it's bullshit to me a little bit. Look, to the extent that someone can find balance and benefit in their life with any sort of philosophical underpinnings or outlook and worldview, by all means, please go through with it. But the reason, I've never said this, I've never said this publicly. It's not necessarily the stoicism itself that I find um, lacking, although it does seem to lack a certain amount of, it's not flexible enough, I think, in certain ways. Uh, it's that, ugh, I've never talked about this before. Give me a second here. <clears throat> My mom's suicide note leaned on stoicism as justification for her actions. Now that itself is not a, and, not, and you know, in some kind of warped way, by the way, because stoicism doesn't tell you to do those things. That, that's not what, what I'm saying. But what I am saying is after that experience, I saw other people it tells me that there are people that cling to this falsely as justification for a pre-existing worldview that is only semi-related. It's not the actual clear implementation of stoicism as such. It's, I have this worldview and I'm going to use stoicism or a version of stoicism anyway to justify it. And that's not exclusive to Stoicism. That's true of almost any uh, philosophical underpinning or coherent worldview of some kind of way. It's 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 hardly alone, but I, I see it a lot 
uh, where people are using it not as a way to change their life, as a way to justify their actions. And again, in the right circumstance, that might be just fine, but it's a lot of bullshit for a lot of people. And I remember feeling like when I read my mom's note that it was just that I was reading a bunch of bullshit by someone who was trying to justify, you know, uh, a terrible life event, basically. Here's another thing, too. Like, I see this as well. People have often asked me, like, what do you make of Jordan Peterson? And I've kind of stayed out of it because, you know, people are like, oh, there are clear sources you can read. You just don't want to. No, I, I, I just don't want to get into whether or not he's great or bad. But what I have seen is people will take snippets of his stuff and use it to justify individual things in their life or whatever. And that's common among anyone. Like anyone says something profound, they want to use it. But there's a commonality between that and what I'm talking about, which is people have a tendency to accept certain philosophical underpinnings or worldviews or ideas not because they've done the examination to make sure that it's true, but because it sounds pleasant or it sounds revealing or it sounds good to them, almost like they're listening to music, not doing a deep introspective look about what kind of philosophy of life they could implement that brings about their goals and balance and healthiness and joy if such a thing is valuable to them. It's almost like it's this, it's this constant, it's, it's much more of an echo feedback loop than it is the introduction to something new, to something truly revelatory, to something truly meaningful, right? Um, and I see a lot of fighters, they'll have like Jordan Peterson clips under their you know workout footage. And by itself, I don't have any comment about it one way or the other, but it's like, you know, to me, you're, there's probably some measure of these people who are taking it because it sounds real nice to them, not because they've actually done the work to figure out whether Jordan Peterson has interesting ideas that they care about. Um, oh, it's or that, 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 that ring true that they've really examined in full detail. Not that I can claim that I've figured that out either. Believe me, I'm, <laughs> I'm hanging on by a thread most days as it is. But if you're going to undertake some kind of real enlightenment journey, and I don't mean like Buddhist, I mean like really figuring out the key to happiness in life, truths are, I have found, I have found are not often what you think they are and have been very difficult to come by. Like they don't come easily to me at all. The, the enduring truths, like the ones that really stand the test of time, they usually take a lot of work and it leads to often very uncomfortable places. Not shit that sounds pleasant at all, actually. Um, always be careful of self-referential shit like that, where, you know, oh, this sounds, man, this doesn't, this doesn't this sound great. Yeah, it sounds great. I'm not, and I'm not saying that the Jordan Peterson clips that they picked this one or that one are wrong. That's not, that's not the point that I'm making. What I'm saying is if you're going to invite these ideas into your life in, don't invite them because they sound pleasant to you. Invite them because under scrutiny, they stood the test of examination that they wrote, they actually were true. And don't be afraid to go to unpleasant places to seek that out. I think that's my only point. And if you end up there, then you end up there. But uh, with Jordan Peterson and anybody else. But if you don't end up there, that's okay too. Um, just make sure you have an authentic process by which you have tried to figure this out. And, and it's not easy. It's not easy. Why was Izzy continually landing the delayed one too? I have to go back and review the tape. I have not 
so that whole weekend fucking that week in new york kind of killed me as you guys saw i came home sick i'm fine now but i came home sick and uh i was just burned out i haven't even looked at that fight since then i need to go back and look it was a big it landed in the first fight too or the, i should say the second fight as well um i'm gonna go back and do a larger tape study thoughts on isaac asimov i haven't thought about him in a long time just finished the first foundation have i uh, hope you enjoyed the song from la renga if you had time to listen to it uh, i don't have a lot of thoughts on isaac asimov except that he's brilliant but i haven't i haven't it's been since high school since i engaged with his ideas any favorite history books you'd recommend great question specifically international relations between the u.s and other countries Um, you want one that's easy to read or not? <laughs> um, okay. Tell you what, here's what I'll do. So I have read both of these, not recently. I have read both of these. I want to be very clear. The two gentlemen I'm about to show you, and I'm not going to give you the, the full details of the book itself, either book. Um, but rather that these two gentlemen have a very different view of a lot of the same uh, parts of the world and all the various things that happened in that world and, uh, and why it happened and what it all means. These two are very much intellectual uh, opposites. So in the interest of reading a more comprehensive view of things, you could start with this one. Orientalism by Edward Said. He is now dead. He was a professor of literature, actually, at Columbia University. Let me do this real quick. A professor of literature at Columbia University. This is a critique of the West's historical, cultural, and political views of the Middle East. Um, and he basically makes an argument that for centuries, um, especially during the portions where Europe was, you know, basically controlling the, the, the Middle and the Near East, um, that these positions of power defined how they viewed the others in this place. And this, in, these entrenched views dominate Western ideas and, and, and many other places as well. I mean, I partly cribbed the back here. Um, but it's a difficult read. It's not an easy read. But it's one of the most groundbreaking things I've ever read. The opposite of that, a man who in their time, they hated each other, is Bernard Lewis's the Middle East, a brief history of the last 2000 years. Uh, this is a tour de force, to put it mildly. And this covers not just the uh, the Arabic or the Arab portions of the Middle East, but Iran, which of course is Persian and they speak a different language and the Turks and the caliphates and everything else. This is an incredible book of scholarly knowledge, but it's one that Edward Said would tell you is bullshit, but I don't think it's bullshit entirely, certainly not. In fact, you could learn a lot from this and it starts back with the Byzantine Empire and even before these are two great books, especially, in, in, and, and you're asking about how the West in, was involved. You can't talk about the modern Middle East without Western intervention. It's just not possible. So there you go. The Middle East by Bernard Lewis and then Orientalism by Edward Said. Uh, don't mean this in a bad way, but have you been experiencing burnout lately? Or is it just the hellscape of Newark wearing on you? Yeah, yeah. Like I was, I didn't do a UFC 2, what is it, 81 wrap up for that reason. It was, it was brutal. It was brutal. I couldn't take it anymore. Um, the travel is fucking, I mean, it's just fucking, it just, your life goes into the directions that it goes. I mean, I'm so lucky to have this job and I love basically every part of it, but it just fucking kills me, man. It fucking kills me that when I was single, 
and I had no pets and no wife and no kid and whatever, I never, not never, but rarely ever got the ability to go on the road. And I'm lucky to go on the road now. I think people see it as quite glamorous, but the reality is at 43, it just doesn't feel the same. And now I have a kid and now I have a wife and now I got two dogs and now I go on the road all the time. And it's like, I wish things could have gone in reverse, you know, but you get the life that you get. All right, talking about Tatiana Suarez being back in 2023, I, or I really hope. Theoretically, where would she fit into the strawweight featherweight picture if she easily wins a return tune-up fight? Top five. Top five. Easy answer, dude. She was a fucking hammer when she was out there before. If she's anything like that again, top five right away, top three probably. Okay, thoughts on Elon's claim for Twitter as fair use platform, then buying it, banning those who speak up against him, telling the U.S. to vote Republican, reinstating Trump. How is that fair as the most influential man in the world? It's a great question. It's, I mean, it's his. He bought it. He can do what he wants with it. I just hope folks understand something here a little bit. Like his interests with the platform are not necessarily, there might be some overlap with the interests. Like, and by the way, there, like, there is a debate. Like I find, you guys know me, I find Trump to be odious and awful, but there is a real debate about whether or not world leaders or highly influential people should be muzzled by these corporate overlords in in the way that they are in fact like i think even lula glenn greenwald has talked a lot about this like even lula da silva has said that trump should be unbanned on twitter so um you know there's a very like vibrant and important debate to be had around that the question is you know um where you draw the lines on that i mean here's what it seems to me what he's doing and i don't think anyone has a great ability to read into it between the purge, okay, so partly he's just trying to trim the fat off of the organization. And I have no doubt that like Twitter had a lot of people on there they didn't need to have, which I'm sure is true of all the tech giants, which by the way, Amazon's having layoffs, Facebook's having layoffs, like what happened with Twitter for different reasons, but tech is in a bit of a slump now. The best approximation I can make of what he's doing is that he was trying to trim the fat one, and then two, he's basically, with, with that hardcore email and everything, he is trying to get Twitter to look like what Twitter in his mind should look like, which is to say he's surrounding himself with people who have a similar vision and what I would even call loyalists. Now, again, I want to be clear about this. This is his fucking thing to do with. Like he can do what he wants. And I will also candidly say my experience on Twitter, I don't notice the difference um, except that he moved like the verified thing. And there are verified people that are just, you know, random donks. But I mean, like in terms of like tweeting and receiving, I don't even notice a difference. It doesn't seem different to me at all. Um, so what it's clear. He is trying to install people, I think, loyal to his vision of things. And whether or not that will succeed with advertising, because only 150,000 people bought the Twitter blue. Like that is not, that is not in any way a path to financial sustainability. Like that, that won't work, right? So you have to do other things. And um, oh, I think Tuki's coming home. Hold on, let me. Uh, so the question is, as he as he moves, and assuming Twitter Twitter stays up and it functions relatively as normal as which for me it has, um, will his vision of allowing these folks on there to have a voice again fulfill whatever free speech ideals that he maintains, in addition to finding a way to make it profitable? which is ultimately what he's trying to do. And I think he's going to find that navigating that and threading that needle is actually a little more difficult than he currently um, believes it to be. I, I have, um, there's a guy named, um, let me pull this down. Let me show you, hey, this one. You know what? Let me pull this up so you guys can see it as a matter of fact. Hold on. I'm going to show you this one. You should read this article. It's very good. Let me show you this one. 
Okay. Take a look at this. So, so this is written by a guy named Mike Masnick. You can follow him on Twitter. That's called, Hey, Elon, let me help you speed run the content moderation learning curve. And if you go through here, level one, okay, we're the, speech, uh, the free speech platform. Cool, cool. Uh, excuse me, boss, but we're getting reports that there are child sexual exploitation and abuse images. Okay, we'll take that down. Level two, we're a free speech platform, but no CSAM. Level three, we're a free, uh, free speech platform, but no CSAM and no infringement, because of course you can't have infringing uh, co copywritten content. And it goes on to level four, level five, level six, level seven, level eight. And the point he tries to make here is that it is very easy to accuse Twitter, the, pre the old version of it, of being overly censorious and not realizing that actually the people who have done moderation for a long time realize there's really no good way to do it that makes everyone happy. You have to have a certain version of it. And is that version profitable or not? Essentially, what he's trying to do is find his version of it. And we're going to see whether it's profitable with advertisers or anybody else. Your guess is as good as mine. Again, my Twitter experience has not changed whatsoever uh, up to this point. So we shall see. We shall see if he can pull this off. Um, uh, but your, your question was, let me show it one more time. How is that fair as the most influential man in the world? Well, this is the other part too. The people who are cheering Elon are cheering him because they like his ideas. But reverse the roles for a little bit. Imagine someone who loves Elon here. Just work with me a little bit. Imagine this dude was doing the opposite. That a billionaire, a left-wing billionaire came in and then banned Trump and banned libs of TikTok and banned you know whoever else and added all of this content moderation staffing, like blew up the staffing so that all the 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 requests for you know copyright piracy were immediately taken down and you couldn't use anything and blah 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 imagine like all of that was happening in reverse because some left-wing billionaire the question is and i don't have a good answer for you, you can answer for yourself the question is do you want a billionaire to have that much control over something like this it's easy to say yes when they're making changes in concert with your worldview but if they're making the opposite one, you begin to question, like, should some single person have this much power? I guess we're going to find out. You say Izzy's IQ, not his physical gifts, are what set him apart. I disagree. If you leave Fight IQ as is and give him Rob's body, would he be as successful? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that either. But I can tell you, has he maximized his own body through intelligent decision making? Yes. Izzy's gone on podcast and delegitimized de 281. I was okay waiting for him to gas out, bring back Mazagati. How is he taking the loss well per Rogan? <coughs> um, he bowed when it was over. He didn't cry about it. He just disagreed with it. it I, I, I don't know. People always have it out for Izzy. I, I just don't quite get it. I, I recognize he disagreed with the decision. His own coach came out and thought it was good. Um, Eugene Behrman. Uh, spoke to some New Zealand outlet, outlet, I think it's called Combat TV. He thought it was good. I mean, does the guy have a right to go out and say he thought it was a little bit early? Uh, most fighters say that. But at the same time, he didn't, to me, he didn't say that like Alex was lucky or he was some kind of shit or something like that. They didn't do what McGregor did, which is that guy is bullshit. This whole thing is bullshit. To me, he made an explanation for why he disagreed. And you can, you can say he's wrong, but... I didn't see like a sour attitude. I saw someone who kind of accepted it, but had a different idea about it. But, you know, I like Izzy a lot, so take that for what it's worth. Thank you, James. Thank you, uh, Blake. Appreciate the advice in the workplace. Yeah, dude, I got you, bro. I'll do my best. What are Volkanovsky's path to victory? You mean against uh, Islam? It's stopping the takedown or, or it's over. It really comes down to that. You taking coffee black or you putting a bunch of nonsense in there? 
Uh, black with Splenda. I do like some Splenda. I like a little sweet. Uh, to end on a lighter note, Luke, what's your Thanksgiving going to be? Oh, Thanksgiving go-to dessert. Dude, people shit on it. I don't quite get it. I love pumpkin pie. I like pumpkin pie with a little bit of whipped cream and then a little bit of like cinnamon on top. Man, I love that. I'm all, I'm about it, about it. I'm, I'm like Master P with the pumpkin pie. Like, let's do it. Let's go. All in favor of it. I'm a Kiwi. You've talked about the cycles of interest in MMA as a fan. After Izzy's loss, I didn't want to see anything MMA related for a week. That's not what I'm talking about. Most of the people watching right now won't be here in five years or whatever I'm doing in five years if I'm still in the industry or whatever. Like, they, they last, they get, again, it's like a, MMA is like the hot girlfriend you have like insane sex with or whatever. Like, it's amazing at first. You can think of nothing else. It's you only want to be around this and blah, 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 blah. And then over time, people just fade away. It's, it burns hot and then it burns out. It's, I've seen it now. I've seen several cycles go through. That's just the way people go with MMA. They fall in love with it and then they get bored. What is your issue with Chatri? And, and general grievances with 1FC. So the, I, I don't know the man personally, so I'm not making a personal claim about him as like, I, I know who he is or something. It's rather that if you're going to make a series of public statements, they have to be backed to the best extent you can make them in in some kind of evidence for them. And, and he just says a bunch of nonsense all the time that I don't know why people accept. Also, the other issue is, I've said this before on MK, uh, back when I hosted the MMA Hour, which was a very brief year for me, but... Um, we put out requests to have him interviewed and you know if you don't want to be interviewed by me i'm i'm an adult just say no but he had a uh he had a pr lackey who eventually went sour with that organization and now works at the pfl and is just you know the worst person in the industry i i wouldn't forgive this person if his life depended on it um just lied to me over and over and then i would see him in the same time frames they would tell me is not like acceptable like, oh, it doesn't work. He's traveling. And then I would see him go on like these little rinky-dink podcasts. I mean, I understand the pitch. Like, obviously, Ariel has it's his thing, and he he makes it bigger than anyone else possibly could. But understand what the pitch is when you go on there. When you go on there, you're going to get onto the show itself. You're going to get a separate video on YouTube. You're going to get social media assets on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook, wherever all the different places. They're going to chop it up. They're going to put all that out there, right? And you're going to get an article or several written about them. So think about like all the deliverables that you get in that space. You get the separate interview. You get sorry. You get the you get the on the main show your own video, all the social media assets, and the articles written about you. It's a level of comprehensive reach that most outlets just simply can't match. If for no other reason alone, it's an attractive offer. And again, like he didn't owe me anything. Like I'm not. He didn't have to say yes. The thing I objected to was that it was a consistent level of lying. If you're not interested, say no. Don't fuck with me. Don't fuck with me. Just say no. And that's the part. It's just, he's been a dishonest broker with me, or his people were at a bare minimum, I should say. His people were a dishonest broker with me from the word go. And then you look at all the things he says in public that are just totally nonsensical, which, you know, a promoter is going to get into that. That's that's part of the job to some extent, which I understand. But that doesn't mean we have to sit there and, like, accept it. Yeah. So I like the One product. I think, dude, I think One is the best organization outside of UFC. Like, I love their product. It's great to watch. It's totally different. It's unique. It's fun. It's thrilling. They match make well. Their rules are good. Like, dude, I like their product. I just uh, don't fuck with me. This is the rule. And he and he did. And he went out of his way to fuck with me. So hope, hope, hope it was worth it, Chatri. Um, all right. I don't agree with a lot of what Edward Said but that book is a brilliant read. Also recommend Lords of the Desert. Also, um, um, 
there's another book I read a long time ago. Um, what was it called? I, I read it in college. I forget. I forget the name of it. But yes, it's a he's a phenomenal read. All right. Uh, let's see. For the college fund for Tukes. Thank you, bro. She had to go to the doctor today. Uh, she's fine, just to check up. Does watching all these title reigns come and go further legitimize Jones' lengthy title control with the light heavyweight division? Yes. One of the most special fighters I've ever seen. Yes. Have there been fighters using PEDs but we're not getting pop that you know of? I'm, I don't have a doubt in, at all. How do you decide what to keep secret or what to report on? Oh, oh, you mean in terms of like my knowledge of it? Um, usually you have to have two sources or you have to have something kind of ironclad. What I mostly have is people just telling me... Um, like uh, what they what they've seen in the gym or something like that, but I don't give a shit. I think this Usada is illegitimate and shouldn't be there to begin with. So <laughs> maybe that's why people confide in me because they know I don't give a fuck. Um, I don't I don't I don't take Usada seriously uh, in general. Um, so yeah, that's it. All right, uh, we got any more? We got one more. Thoughts on Hemsworth retiring? Alzheimer's gene? I don't know who he's talking about. Let me see. What is that all about? Oh, he isn't retiring. He just wants... Oh, Chris Hemsworth. He just wants to spend more time with family and take preventative steps. Oh, after finding he's genetically predisposed to Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, that's terrible. That's really terrible. I'm sorry to hear that. Life is unpredictable, folks. Very unpredictable. Um, thank you to everyone who watched today. Thank you to Othello for helping out. This will go up on podcast later tonight. Um, and I'll be off, obviously, on Thursday. I'll catch up with you guys next Thursday uh, when we're back. So thank you guys so much for watching. I appreciate it. And until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>